Abba, Father, I pray the outpouring of the Lord Jesus Christ come upon this place. And that our Lord Jesus Christ would be glorified. That all glory would be His today. Lord, I pray that You'd open up the Scriptures to us. Even as they said, were not our hearts burning within us when He spoke to us along the road and when He opened the Scriptures to us? Father, do that with us today. Let our hearts burn within us. Open the Scriptures to us. Teach us from your word. Father, teach us. By the power of God, teach us. The grace of God, fill us. And Father, I pray that for each heart here, they would experience a deeper walk with Jesus Christ as a result of this morning, as a result of this very day, that there would be a deeper walk in Jesus Christ, as a result of looking into your word and beholding the glories of your word. And Father, I lift up to you today the unbelievers, those who have never experienced the goodness of our Lord Jesus Christ. Father, I pray that they would come this day, that you'd open up their hearts this day. Father, save souls this day, I pray. Turn them to you. And for the believers, that they would walk in obedience to your word to experience the glory of God. Let Jesus be glorified. The power of God, I pray, by the Holy Spirit, bring glory to our Lord Jesus Christ. And I offer this up to you, my Father, in the name of our blessed Lord Jesus. Amen. We are continuing in this portion in 1 Peter chapter 3, starting from verse 13, leaving off where, where, where uh, the pastor left off last week. 1st Peter chapter 3 verse 13 Who is there to harm you if you prove zealous for what is good but even if you should suffer for the sake of righteousness you are blessed and do not fear their intimidation and do not be troubled but sanctify Christ as Lord in your hearts always being ready to make a defense to everyone who asks you to give an account for the hope that is in you yet with gentleness and reverence and keep a good conscience, so that in the things in which you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ will be put to shame. For it is better, if God should will it so, that you suffer for doing what is right rather than for doing what is wrong. For Christ also died for sins once for all, the just for the unjust, so that he might bring us to God, having been put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the Spirit. In which also... We he went and he made proclamation to the spirits now in prison, who once were disobedient when the patience of God kept waiting in the days of Noah, during the construction of the ark, in which a few, that is, eight persons, were brought safely through the water. Corresponding to that, baptism now saves you, not the removal of dirt from the flesh, but an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who is at the right hand of God, having gone into heaven after after angels and authorities and powers had been subject to him. So in verse 13 it says, Who is there to harm you if you prove zealous for what is good? He's saying generally people are not going to bother you if you prove zealous for what is good. Being zealous for what is good means that we intentionally try to do acts of good. Just showing up and keeping our mouths shut is not being zealous for that which is good. Being zealous for that which is good is intentionally participating in doing good things. 
I did prison ministry for 10 years, and when guys would get out of the prison, they would come to me, they say, you, you know, I need a job. And I say, you know, I, I can help you with that. I can't hire you. I don't have a position for you, but I can tell you how to do it. You come to my church, and you start getting involved in the church where you start helping. You set up chairs, you clean, you do things, you help out. And you become active in that way without any pay. Somebody will see you, and they'll hire you. It is proving zealous for what is good. It is doing the right thing intentionally. It is not just sitting quiet. He says, if you do this, generally people won't bother you. He says, but once in a while, it could be different. In verse 14, but even if you should suffer for the sake of righteousness, you are blessed. Once in a while, when we do that which is good and righteous, people will come against us. And in these days of social media, it's all the more. Because people can sit in anonymity and write things. And he says, even if you should suffer for the sake of righteousness, you are blessed. You are blessed. He says, when these people do this, I'm going to give you an extra blessing. Jesus said, blessed are you when men revile you and persecute you and say all manner of evil against you falsely on account of me. Rejoice and be glad for your reward in heaven is great for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. When we prove zealous for what is good, even if people should come against us, we are blessed. There is an extra blessing. There is an extra blessing. And if you should start rising up in your life and you start having some public place in your life and you start teaching things or holding on to things that are contrary to the world, the internet trolls will come after you. I urge you, don't even bother reading it. Don't even bother. You are blessed. Every time they write something against you, you are blessed. That's what he says. He says, you are blessed when they come against you. And he says, and do not fear their intimidation and do not be troubled. He doesn't say, I have a recommendation for you. I recommend that you do not fear. No, he doesn't say that. He says, do not fear. What part of that doesn't sound like a commandment? Do not fear. This is a commandment. He says, do not fear their intimidation. Do not be troubled. This is a commandment. We are commanded not to fear. In Jeremiah, in Jeremiah chapter, chapter 1 verse 17, God is, is calling Jeremiah, a young man, into the ministry. And he says, you know, you're going to have to oppose all sorts of things. You're going to be uh, uh, opposing all sorts of people with your word. But look what he tells Jeremiah in Jeremiah chapter 1, verse 17. Now gird up your loins and arise and speak to them all which I command you. Do not be dismayed before them or I will dismay you before them. Huh? Do not be dismayed before them. Or, I will dismay you before them. Be afraid to be afraid. If you fear, I'll give you something to fear about. This is how strong the command is. This is to a young guy, Jeremiah, just starting out his ministry. Just a young man. He says, now behold, I have made you today as a fortified city, as a pillar of iron, and as a wall of bronze to the whole land to the kings of Judah, to its princes, to its priests, and the people of the land. They will fight against you, but they will not overcome you, for I am with you to deliver you, declares the Lord. Look what he's telling Jeremiah, this young man. He says, I have made you today a fortified city, a pillar of iron, a wall of bronze. I remember going into the prisons as a young man, 
preaching the gospel and thinking, who am I? You know, I'm just this little guy and these guys grew up in the hood. I mean, these are tough guys. And God, would you speak to me through this verse? I've made you a fortified city, a pillar of iron and a wall of bronze. And then boom, I could give him the word of God. God fills us. He says, be afraid to be afraid. This is what he's doing here. Where he's, 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 uh, um, he's taking us to this portion and he says, do not be afraid. We are commanded not to be troubled by them. We are commanded not to be intimidated by them. It is a command. When we are commanded to do something and we obey, there is grace. His grace has to be there. It has to happen. There's grace there. Be afraid to be afraid. He says, but sanctify Christ as Lord in your hearts. Always being ready to make a defense to everyone who asks you to give an account for the hope that is in you. Yet with gentleness and reverence. He says, he says, sanctify Christ as Lord in your hearts. That means set apart Christ as Lord in your hearts. You want to have victory? It comes through a relationship with Jesus Christ. If there is anything good in life, it is all because of Jesus. There is no good in us. There is no good. If there is any goodness in us, it is because Jesus has placed it there. Everything good in this world has come through Jesus Christ, the very Son of God. He says, sanctify God, sanctify Christ in your heart. That means set apart Christ in your heart. You want to have victory life? You want to have a victorious life? You sanctify Christ in your hearts. It is very simple. You spend time in the Word of God, in prayer in fellowship with Jesus Christ. Without that, you will not have victory. You sanctify Christ in your heart. It is that simple. It is digital. You do it, you'll be blessed. You don't, you won't. He says that we are to sanctify Christ in our hearts. Christ as Lord in our hearts. You get permeated with Jesus Christ. That is what it is all about. I encourage you, if you do not have a regular time with the Lord, to learn to wake up early and to spend time with God. That is the only way that I know that I see change coming in a person's life. That's the only way I know. I try to work with students lots of times, and I try to you know, work with them to get them to improve themselves and think, yeah, yeah, I'll do it, I'll do it. It's just a head fake. The next day they're going back and doing the same thing again. It is not until the Word of God comes into a person's life. And I have seen dramatic change. I've seen students who everybody hates. Because they're terrible people. And then all of a sudden they get Christ in their hearts and everything changes. They all of a sudden can go and apologize to people. Something they've, they've never done before in their lives. And things start to change around them. You get Christ in your heart. Sanctify Christ in your heart, it says. Christ as Lord in your hearts. Always being ready to make a defense to everyone who asks you to give an account. Always being ready to make a defense. This is this whole idea of apologetics. That's where the the derivative of this of of this word defense. To make a defense. This this whole word that we hear a lot about uh, an apologist, someone who is making a defense for the gospel. When I grew up, we never heard about this word, you, you know, apologists. We never heard, prior to Ravi Zacharias, we never heard about this. And I, I thought an apologist was someone who went at, around asking for forgiveness all the time. Ready to make a defense for the hope that dwells within us. And I'll tell you something. We hear a lot, I hear a lot of young people want to study apologetics. 
want to learn all about this and study the great philosophers, this and that and the other thing. I'll tell you, I hear some apologists speak. I don't even know what they're talking about. You think I know? You know, I'm sort of educated a little bit. I don't even know what they're talking about. The thing that's different about Ravi Zacharias is it's constantly the Word of God. I encourage you, if you want to make a defense for the, for the gospel, if you want to become an apologist and learn all about the philosophers, learn the Bible first. Take this Word of God and make it your daily meditation. Learn the Bible. If you understand this Word, if you understand the Bible, I would take one sentence out of this book and put more weight on it than all the philosophers in the world. This is the very Word of God. This has been written by God. This Word has so much more power. It is when Ravi takes the Word of God, people will ask him about this philosopher, and he'll mention some things, and boom, he's right back to the Word of God. So many apologists, quote-unquote apologists today, don't know anything about the Scriptures, or it's really cursory, their understanding. I urge you, learn the Word of God. Learn the Word of God. A man, a woman, who knows the Word of God, who knows the Word of God and understands it, is a tremendous apologist. Because everything people say, you boom, goes right back to the Word of God. Goes right back to the Word of God. You have to be a philosopher to understand what a lot of apologists are saying. And I don't even understand it, and I just go to sleep. I don't understand them. But as soon as they bring it to the Word of God, there's tremendous life. You want to make a defense for the hope that is within you? Learn the Word of God. Spend time in the Word of God. I don't even talk about memorization. I talk about meditation. The Bible never talks about memorizing. It talks about meditating upon so that you just stare at this verse over and over and you think about this all day. All of a sudden, you've memorized it. I encourage you, as young people... Take this Word of God and make it your meditation till you learn the Scriptures. Your, your brains are, work so fast in your teens and your twenties. It really does. Your neurons are firing at a much faster rate. Absolutely. It slows down when you get older. It really does. You, you ask an old person to write a check. I mean, it takes forever. Like, you know, write me the check or not? Their neurons are firing so slow. Don't wait till you're like that before you try to get the scriptures in your heart. While your neurons are firing fast and you can do these video games like magic, get the Word of God in your heart. Get it in your heart. Because this is the age where you can pull it into your hearts at a phenomenal rate. This is how you make a defense for the hope that is within you. And then he says, I love what he says, he says, yet with gentleness and reverence. I need that. I mean, people ask me one thing, I'm like, oh, you know, boom. They never come back again. God constantly has to remind me, they're not my enemy. They just ask the question. Just be kind. Be kind. This is, that, that one's for me. It's probably not for you. Jesus used the word of God. When Satan came to him in the book, in, in Gospel according to Matthew, Satan came at him three times. He never quoted a philosopher from his day. He never quoted a rabbi. All he did was quote the word of God. Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. Boom! It shut the devil's mouth. Then the devil came at him quoting some, from some Psalm 91, very selectively, by the way. 
And Jesus came back at him again, that you should not tempt the Lord your God. And then Jesus came back at him again with Scripture. Jesus, the apologist, the one who tells us to mount a defense, used the Word of God. He used the Word of God. He was not citing the philosophers of his day. He used the Bible. Maybe that works. Maybe that's our model. Then he says in verse, in verse 16, and keep a good conscience so that in the things in which you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ will be put to shame. He says, you keep a good conscience. I was talking with a young man recently and he was, he was seeing this young girl and they weren't living a Christian wholesome life at all. And he talked about how they want to get married and they want to have this ministry. It's going to be this really powerful ministry. And I looked at him and I said, you're not going to have any ministry. Your ministry is going to be useless. It'll have no power because of the way you're living. When our conscience is seared, when we are living in sin, there is no power. It is the Holy Spirit that gives power. When our conscience is seared, there is no power. There is no power without the conscience being right. It says in Proverbs chapter 28, verse 13, Proverbs 28, 13, He who conceals his transgression will not prosper, but he who confesses and forsakes them will find compassion. He who conceals his transgression will not prosper. What part of that do we not understand? When we conceal these things, we will not prosper. But he who confesses and forsakes them will find compassion. Proverbs 28, 13. But he who confesses, this is why we go to the Lord and we confess our sins. But he who confesses and forsakes them, what will he find? Compassion. Compassion. It is not that we do not sin. It is, have we gone back to the Lord? And saying, Lord, forgive me because I'm a sinner. Forgive me. Give me victory over this, I pray thee, O God. This is what he calls us to. This is what he has for us. The conscience. When your conscience is right, you can just go in and do tremendous things. In Proverbs 28, verse 1, it says, The wicked flee when no one is pursuing, but the righteous are as bold as a lion. Proverbs 28, 1. The wicked flee when no one is pursuing. You want to have a defeated life? You'll be defeated and running when no one's even chasing after you. If you're walking in wickedness. But the righteous are as bold as a lion when you walk in righteousness. He gets right at our conscience. It is an important thing in the Scriptures. Gets right at our conscience. He says, for it is better if God should will it. In verse 17 of 1 Peter chapter 3, it is better if God should will it that you suffer for doing what is right rather than for doing what is wrong. For it is better if God should will it so that you suffer for doing what is right than for doing what is wrong. Either way, you're going to suffer. You do right, you're going to suffer. You're going to do wrong, you're going to suffer. You do wrong, you're going to suffer because the police are going to come and arrest you. You do right, you're going to suffer because people will come against you because you're doing what is right. He says it right here. If God should will it so. All of this is embodied in the will of God. God, I was just being nice. Why did this happen? Because I told you it would. In 2 Timothy chapter 2, 
verse 12, 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 12, it says, If we suffer with Him, if we suffer with Jesus, we shall also reign with Him. If we suffer with Him, we shall also reign with Him. But if we deny Him, He will also deny us. 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 12. If we deny Him, He will also deny us. Does that mean we lose our salvation? No. But it means He'll deny us. If we deny Him, He will deny us. The Word of God means business. There is suffering in Christ. You want to walk with Him? You're going to suffer. You don't walk with Him? You're going to suffer. He says it's much better if you suffer for doing what is right than for doing what is, what is evil, what is wrong. That's what He tells us. It's the Word of God reveals to us. Then He goes on in verse 18. For Christ also died for sins once for all, the just for the unjust, that He might bring us to God, having put, been put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the Spirit. He says Christ died for sins once for all. Jesus has died for you. Why did He do this? It says, He says, the just for the unjust so that He might bring us to God. Jesus died for you in order to introduce you to His Father. That's what it says. He died, the just for the unjust, so that He might bring us to God. Wow! He loves His Father so much that He says, I will die for you just to be able to introduce you to my Father. That's what Jesus says. I think my wife is the greatest. I want people to meet my wife. You come to my house, you meet my wife. I like to have them over for, for a meal so they see my wife in just full ministry mode. Just cooking and doing things. I want them to meet my wife. I want them to meet my wife. And my children were the same way. They would bring their friends home all the time for their friends to meet their mother. They love her so much, they wanted their friends to meet her. They love her so much that they would tolerate me. That's exactly what it is. Jesus, I want you to meet my father. I'm telling you, I love Jesus so much. I plead with you. Come to Him. I want you to meet my Jesus. I want you to experience what I have in a relationship with Christ. I want you to know what it is to walk with Jesus. He is so good. It is over 40 years ago. I bowed my knee and I accepted Jesus. Never has He been mean to me. He has always been kind, always been gracious. I can remember my years as an undergraduate pouring out my heart to God, asking Him for grace to get me through my exams and get me through school. I thought, I thought nobody, there's never been an undergraduate ever who worked as hard as I did. That was my perception. But I worked so hard, I said, Lord, help me. And then I can remember my graduate school days where I would bow before him. Every Wednesday we would have a physical chemistry exam. And I said, physical chemistry? Oh. And I would bow my knee before God. And I say, quoting the scriptures, Lord, there is no one to help me in the battle between the strong and those who have no, no strength. So Lord God, help me. 
And Jesus was always gracious, always gracious. I have decades of walking with him. I want you to meet my Lord. I plead with you this day, come to Jesus. If you do not know him, I plead with you this day, come to know him. After the second service, so after this service, everybody's going to break and go to different Sunday school classes, Bible classes. And then after the second service, because I'll be speaking in the second service, we're going to have a lunch because my wife is away this week, and so we're having lunch in the, in the chapel, the college group is. If you don't, do not know the Lord, I ask you to come to that lunch. I want to sit with you, and I want to tell you my story about how Jesus came into my life, and I want to plead with you as I tell you my story about Jesus. I want to introduce you to Jesus Christ, how good he is, how wonderful he is. It says... He died the just for the unjust. He died the just for the unjust. So if you feel unjust, boom, you're the person who's he died for. If you feel just and you're okay, it's not for you. This is for someone else. It says in, in Romans chapter 5, verse 6 through 8, it says, For while we were still helpless at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. Jesus died for the ungodly. Not the godly. So if you feel yourself as godly, Jesus didn't die for you. You don't need him. You're godly. But Jesus died for the ungodly. He died for the ungodly. If that is you, and you have not yet accepted him, I beg you, please come, and I will sit with you, and I will talk with you, and I will share and introduce you to my Jesus. And then he will introduce you to his Father. He loves you so much that He died for you to introduce you to His Father. That is what it says. So that He might bring us to God. That's what He wanted to do. Having been put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the Spirit. Verse 19 of 1 Peter chapter 3. In which also He went and He made proclamation to the spirits now in prison who once were disobedient when the patience of God kept waiting in the days of Noah during the construction of the ark in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought to safety through the water. Okay, so so this is an interesting passage without understanding, I think, from the messianic perspective, meaning the messianic Jewish perspective, the Jewish believers who believe Jesus is the Messiah. This is a very confusing portion. But if you understand... From the Messianic Jewish perspective, it all comes alive. Peter was the apostle to the Jews. Paul was to the Gentiles. Peter was to the Jews. And that is why Peter says in this, don't be like the Gentiles. He wouldn't say don't be like the Gentiles. It's the Gentiles. He says to them here, he says that, that uh, uh, in which he made proclamations to the spirits now in prison. That is in Hades or Sheol. Sheol is the Jewish word for the underworld. Hades is the Greek word for the underworld. We're we're disembodied spirits, humans that are disembodied spirits. So they've died, their spirits go to be in Sheol or Hades. And then also there were fallen angels from from, uh, uh, Genesis chapter 6. You say, where are you getting this from? Right here. He's talking about Noah. He's talking about what happened in the book of Genesis and why he had to bring Noah onto the scene. Well, what does hell look like? Well, Jesus told us what it looks like. So let, let's turn to uh, let's let's turn to to Luke chapter sixteen. Luke chapter sixteen. Jesus told us what hell looks like. I mean, the description is here, and we're going to go with that description. 
He says in Luke chapter 16, verse 19, there was a rich man and he habitually dressed in purple and fine linen, joyously living in splendor every day. Now this is Luke chapter 16, verse 20. And a poor man named Lazarus was laid at his gate, covered with sores and longing to be fed with the crumbs that were falling from the rich man's table. Besides, even the dogs were coming and licking his sores. Now the poor man died and was carried away by the angels to Abraham's bosom. And the rich man died and was buried. In Hades... That's the Greek word for the underworld. In Hades, he lifted up his eyes, being in torment, and saw Abraham far away and Lazarus in his bosom. And he cried out and he said, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus so that he may dip the tip of his finger in water and cool off my tongue, for I am in agony in this flame. But Abraham said, Child, remember that during your life you received good things and likewise Lazarus bad things. Now he is being comforted here and you are in agony. And besides all this, between us and you, there is a great chasm fixed so that those who wish to come over from here to you will not be able. And, the one, and that none may cross from there to us. That is the description of what the underworld looks like. Departed spirits go to the underworld, to Hades or to Sheol. They went to the bosom of Abraham. Other places in the scriptures is described as paradise. It's described as paradise. In the bosom of Abraham. It is a holding place. It is a good holding place for those that knew the Lord. A good holding place. And then there was a great chasm, a great chasm. A thin little, a great chasm. And in the distance were the ones that were in a terrible place. Where there was thirst and burning fire. But the two could talk across. They could speak across to one another. And so one cries out. The rich man cries out. He cries out. He says, send Lazarus to dip his tongue. And Abraham says, he can't come. Nobody from there can come over. And nobody here can go over there. That's why there's no preaching of the gospel in hell. Because it would be unavailing. Nobody can cross over. Nobody crosses over. That's what Jesus tells us in this in this passage that he's telling us. He's giving us this description. It can't pass over. But you can speak across it. So, in in uh, in verse 19 of 1 Peter chapter 3, in which also he made proclamation to the spirits now in prison. These are either disembodied humans, that the bodies are dead, the spirits are there, or more commonly as we see in the book of Hebrews when it speaks of these spirits, these are the fallen angels that it speaks about in, in Genesis chapter 6. Because there was a messianic prophecy in Genesis chapter 3 saying that the Messiah will come from the seed of the woman. In, Gen- in, in, in Genesis chapter 6, it says that the sons of God, meaning the angels, interbreeded with the women of men, with the daughters of men, with women, and there was a super race called the Nephilim. The Nephilim were all wiped out in the flood and that's why God brought the flood because that the race was infected by these fallen angels. And there was a family that remained pure and that was Noah's family. And those were the eight that were saved in the ark. The rest of them were wiped out. You say, well, the Nephilim were in the land when the Israelites came in. No, there were no Nephilim. The Israelites said when they were saying that these creatures, we can't defeat them. And we saw the Nephilim there. They were lying because when they went into the land, there's no reference to the Nephilim. The Nephilim were wiped out in the book of Genesis. But this is what he's talking about. He says, in which he made proclamation when Jesus, it says in verse, in verse 18, he says, having been put to death in the flesh, but being made alive in the spirit. Jesus died on the cross. 
His spirit died for three hours. His spirit, that's why Jesus said, said he spoke of his separation from the Father. This was spiritual separation before his body ever died. Then his spirit revived. His spirit came back alive before his flesh ever died and then his flesh died. During this time when his spirit came back alive, he went and he made proclamation on the good side. He was in the bosom of Abraham making proclamation, not preaching the gospel, preaching, speaking that he was victorious. As we are saved, this was the proclamation to the devil that you are forever damned and your, your, your fallen angels with you. This is the proclamation that was made. And then he says, he says in, in verse 20, who once were disobedient when the patience of God kept waiting in the days of Noah. They kept waiting in the days of Noah. This is what it's talking about, the days of Noah. During the construction of the ark in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through the water. Corresponding to that, baptism now saves you. He's speaking about physical flesh. Noah knew the Lord before the flood ever hit. It wasn't that going through this experience made him know the Lord. No, this saved his physical life. His physical life was saved. Messianic Jews, you will see this throughout the Scriptures. You will see this in Peter's preaching in Acts chapter 2. What does he tell them? He says, repent and be baptized so that you can be saved. Repent and be baptized. Well, baptism doesn't save you. Peter goes on to say, he says, save yourselves from the wrath to come. How can a person save themselves? Because baptism to the Messianic Jew, to the believing Jew, was going to spare you from the 70 AD judgment. This book was written in the early 60 ADs. It was going to save you from the judgment that was to come upon Israel. Jesus proclaimed the judgment. And it was going to hit in 70 AD. They knew the date was coming. They knew this time was coming. And all the Jews in Jerusalem were going to be destroyed. All of them. These are the Jews in the diaspora the persecution was getting heavy. Many of them were thinking to go back into Jerusalem only by being baptized. Only by being baptized will you be separated and taken care of. This is going to spare your life physically. Because if you don't, you're going to end up in Jerusalem and get killed. This was said again and again. The same thing is said to them in the book of Hebrews. It is a physical protection. Baptism doesn't do anything for our salvation, spiritually. For them, it separated them. And for us, it separates us. From the world. It says, corresponding to that, baptism now saves you, not the removal of dirt from the flesh, but an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. An appeal to God for a good conscience. Jesus was baptized. We are commanded to be baptized. If you have not been baptized, you're walking in disobedience. I have never, I have never seen a person who has not been baptized as a believer walk in victory in their lives. I've never seen them. Do great things for the kingdom of God without baptism. Why? Because there's a separation. There's an act of disobedience, a willful disobedience, refusal to be baptized. You say, well, that's kind of embarrassing. I'm 60 years old and I still have been sitting in a Baptist church. and I'm not... Be embarrassed. Fine. That is walking with God. It says many, it says in John chapter 12, many, many people believed on him. Many of the rulers believed on Jesus. But they were not confessing him for fear of the Pharisees that they would be thrown out of the synagogue. So many of the rulers believed on Jesus, but they wouldn't confess him 
from being afraid that they'd be thrown out of the synagogue. That's a big thing. That means excommunication. That means no interaction with the people. It's a big deal. So you think the scriptures understand? No, the scriptures don't understand. The next verse says, because they love the approval of men more than the approval of God. It's in John chapter 12. You love the approval of men more than the approval of God if you are refraining from being baptized. It is a willful act of disobedience and it will sear your conscience as it does right now. And forever it will hold you back. So I urge you this day, as a believer in Christ, to come and to be baptized. In this church, it's easier than any church I've ever seen. You just walk up, you fill out a card, they check to make sure you're saved, and you get baptized. Some churches, you've got to go through like months of training. Here, it's so easy. Be baptized. Even Paul. Paul got saved on the road to Emmaus because he was, he was, he was there in Damascus and he was... Th- uh, 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 not in the road, to, the road to Damascus, he got saved. And when he got saved, it says he was praying. Ananias said, how do I know if I got the right guy? God said, because he's praying. He gets there and he says, Ananias, go and pray for him. Open his eyes. Paul recounts this. And as soon, in, in Acts chapter 22, Ananias comes to him, prays for him, his eyes are open. And Ananias says, what to him? Get baptized. Get baptized because you've got to be set apart. Get baptized. And boom, right away, Paul gets baptized. Are you better than Paul? Get baptized. If you're embarrassed about it, be embarrassed. Get baptized. The Word of God should make us embarrassed if we don't obey. Get baptized. And then he says, he says in, in verse 21, the end of it, he says, For a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, you model His resurrection when you get baptized, who is at the right hand of God having gone into heaven after angels and authorities and powers have been subjected to Him. Jesus is in heaven. Heaven and earth are too small for Him. God has placed Him at His very right hand. Jesus is the King. It is before Him that we bow. It is to Him we give honor. To Him we give praise. If there's anything good in life, it is embodied in Jesus Christ. Everything has been given to the Son. I urge you to come to Him. Remember, if you do not know the Lord, at 12.30, you go into the chapel, I will be there. At 12.30, you say, well, I have to wait around for an hour. Yeah, you got to wait around. Big deal. You're going to get saved. And I will share with you the gospel. I will share with you the gospel and introduce you to my Jesus, who is seated at the right hand of the Father before whom everything in heaven and earth either is bowing or shall bow. I will introduce you to him, and he will introduce you to the Father. Let's pray. Abba, Father, I pray in the name of Jesus, in the name of your blessed Son, that for those here who do not know you, that they would come, that they would come this very day and get saved. Father, they would come and hear my story at 12.30 and get saved. Because it's not up to the man who wills or the man who runs, but to God who has mercy. So, Father, in your mercy, save their souls, I pray. And, Father, for the believers here who have not been baptized, I pray that right now you convict them of this and they, they would come forward and be baptized, sign up to be baptized. Father, that they could see victory in their lives. And Father, I pray for the believers here that you would give them a heart to seek you and to seek your face. Father, let them love you and sanctify Christ 
in their hearts as Lord for the glory of our Lord Jesus and in his name. Amen.